If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking at verses 12 to 17 this morning. And I want to start by asking, have you ever walked with a toddler? I can remember when our kids were that age trying to get from point A to point B, right? We lived in an urban area. Maybe we were going to the grocery store. Maybe we were going to the post office. And our kids always wanted or often wanted to get out of the stroller and to walk. But what happens when you let them out? Well, first of all, they toddle so slowly. And uh, second, they want to stop and squat down and examine every bug and every acorn and every flower, right? And not just on the sidewalk. No, they want to wander into some stranger's yard to see the dog or the pinwheel and the flower bed or whatever it is that their eye has spied. Now, when their grandparents are visiting, they're like, oh, aren't they so wonderful? They're so curious and smart. But as a parent, you're trying to get an errand done uh, between nap schedules, right? And the slowness can just drive you crazy. Well, older kids and adults aren't immune from getting distracted and wandering off the path and losing sight of our destination. And that's what today's passage is about. In today's passage, the author of Hebrews is going to continue working with the image we saw last Sunday in the first half of chapter 12, the image of running an endurance race, a marathon. So today's passage raises the question, what are we running after? What are we chasing? What destination are our eyes on? Take a minute and think of your own life and how you would answer that question. What are you running after? What are you chasing? What destination do you have your eyes set on? Let me ask a related question. What about for our church and as a whole church, as a part of the broader body of Christ, what are we running after? What are we chasing? What destination do we have our eyes set on? Because what I see when I look at the church overall in the United States, at least, is that in many cases, we're lost. We've lost our way. Like that toddler wandering after a ladybug into somebody's yard, we've lost track of where we're supposed to be going. Well, today's passage is there to urge us to get back on track. It begins with a powerful image, an image straight from the Old Testament prophets. An image maybe you relate to if you've ever run a long-distance race. The image is of a runner who's run so far and so long that their hands have gotten heavy and they can barely lift them up. And their knees are so weak that they want to buckle and fall. 
I've experienced this as a runner in track in high school. One of the things you learn early on when you're a runner is how important your arms are for running. You, you've got to pump them in rhythm to keep your legs going and to keep your body in rhythm. And this is the reason sometimes you'll see runners training with small weights in their hands to build up their arms because when you run long enough and hard enough pumping your arms, your arms get almost as tired as your legs. And pretty soon you can barely keep your arms up and they want to fall down at your side and your, your legs get tired, your knees feel weak. And in that situation, there's actually an increased danger that you'll trip and you'll fall. It's especially true in cross country if you're running off roads, sometimes on an uneven path. And it can be so easy to twist your ankle, to hurt yourself, especially if you step off the hard-packed path. And this image of, of limp arms and weak knees is used repeatedly in the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. It's actually the verse that Hebrews is quoting here, Isaiah 35.3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come to save you. Notice in this verse something very important. Notice what causes the feeble hands and the weak knees. Fear. And very often in the, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, when this image of limp hands or feeble knees is used, it's because the people are terrified. Let me give you just one more example from Isaiah 13 this time. Here Isaiah is prophesying an invasion, the, the devastating attack of enemies. And verse 7 says, because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Fear. Very often in the Bible, uh, this is what causes hands to go limp and knees to go weak. Let me ask you, have you ever been afraid? <laughs> have you ever been anxious or consumed by worry? What, what did it do to you? Did it wear you out? Did it sap your strength, your life, your courage, your resolve? Let me ask you another question. Is the church in America today afraid of anything? Are Christians afraid? Afraid that we're losing the culture wars, that we're losing our influence, or maybe even that we're going to face increased persecution? Are we afraid of the agenda of our political or ideological opponents and that that agenda is going to win? Are we afraid of COVID? Are we afraid of vaxxers or are we afraid of anti-vaxxers? Are we afraid of critical race theory or are we afraid of white nationalism? I've seen, I've never seen so much fear. And what does all this fear do? Well, it wears us down. It weakens our knees. In the race we're running, our arms start to feel heavy. Our knees feel shaky, and if we're not careful, we might trip and fall. And so Hebrews counsels us, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths 
for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. How? How can we strengthen our tired arms? How can we re-energize our weak knees? How can we keep our feet on level paths, or as some translations put it, on straight paths? How can we keep our feet on the main hard-packed path so that we don't get lost or we don't slip and turn our ankle and fall and drop out of the race completely? Well, the first thing we need to realize is this. The passage we're looking at today is written not so much to individuals as it is to a community of faith. And that's almost always the way it is actually in the New Testament. And those of us who are Westerners are so individualistically oriented that we have to constantly remind ourselves of this fact. Most always, the New Testament is addressing a community and not individuals, primarily. And so here's where it would help if we all spoke Southern. Because um, when the Bible speaks in you plural, Southerners have a word for that, right? Y'all. Not you individually, but y'all plural, or even all y'all in some parts of the South. And very, very often in the New Testament, that's what the original language is when you see the word you. It's y'all. It's plural. And it is in this passage. We are running a race. And we are running together as a community. And so here's another way to look at this. When we as a church have hands that are heavy and knees that are weak, these are parts of the whole body. And if the body is all of us, then it's some of us maybe who are getting weary. And if those people fall, it may cause the whole body to stumble. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, as you run together, look out for one another. Help the hands that are weak. Help the knees that are tired. Help the feet stay on straight paths. Help the lame or the parts that are lame or th- so that they can be healed rather than disabled. How? Well, the author of Hebrews is going to tell us, starting in verse 14, y'all make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. I don't love this translation, make every effort, because literally the Greek can mean pursue peace and holiness, run after peace and holiness. You see, we haven't left the running imagery behind here. We're still running together, and the author of Hebrews is reminding us what we're running after and what we're supposed to be chasing. Peace and holiness. We'll come back to that in a minute. But first, let's follow the logic of this passage, because next in verse 15, in English, we have another command, and that's because our Bible translators try to shorten the long Greek sentences for us so we don't lose track of Uh, our train of thought. We have short attention spans these days. But in Greek, this is actually a participle, which is likely explaining how or in what way we go about running after peace and holiness. How do we chase after these things? By seeing to it. You could translate it that way, seeing to it. We chase after peace and holiness 
by all seeing to it. And this participle, this seeing to it, is the verb form. We're going to go, we're going to nerd out just a little bit here on, on Greek because it's important to the meaning of this passage. It's, it's the verb form of the Greek noun episkopos, from which we get the English word episcopal, which is a form of church government where the person in charge is a bishop, an overseer. That's what an episkopos means. And, and so this participle tra- uh, carries the idea of overseeing, of watching over, which is what a good bishop is supposed to do. But here it's not the bishop's job. It's not the overseer's job. It's everyone's job. We all are to see to it. We are all to watch over one another so that what? Verses 15 and 16 list three things. Watch over one another so that first, nobody falls short of the grace of God. Second, that no bitter root grows up among us. And third, verse 16, that nobody is like Esau. Well, before we dig into the details of all this, let's remember the big picture. We're all running a race together. It's a long race. There's an African proverb that says that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. The race we're running is far. It is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so we need to run together. And what are we running after? What are we chasing? We're chasing peace and holiness. And what does that involve? It involves watching over one another. Watching over one another is not just a bishop's job or an overseer's job or in our church, not just the pastor's job or the elder's job. It's everyone's job. We are to be our brother's keeper or our sister's keeper. Not nosy, not invasive, but gently, lovingly caring. We're to watch over one another. So that none of us get so tired that we stumble, that we sprain an ankle and fall, that we get knocked out of the race. And what makes us weary? What saps our strength? Well, a big one is fear. For the original audience, the recipients of of Hebrews, remember for them, they were afraid of being persecuted. They they were afraid of, of pain and suffering. They were afraid of losing everything they'd worked so hard to gain. This was a very real fear that they were actually facing. And so some of them felt weak. They felt tempted to compromise, to give up their faith in Jesus in favor of of something safer and more comfortable. And the author of Hebrews is urging all of them, the whole community, to watch over one another, to help one another, lest any of them stumble or fall. How about us? What's our fear? Is it persecution? Is it that our future will be less comfortable and less free than our past? that we may face hard times, that we may lose some of our freedoms. Here's what Hebrews challenges us with. What are you chasing? What are you actually running after? Comfort? An easy life? 
Or are you chasing Jesus who died on a cross and told us if we want to follow him, we have to take up our crosses and said we will face hard times and we will be persecuted if we follow him. But we have a mission in the world to love people, to love even our enemies, to serve others, to be people of good news, to live contagious, upside-down lives in a fallen world so that our lives will shine like light in the darkness. So, pursue, run after peace with all people, Hebrews says. And holiness, too. Because without holiness, Hebrews adds, you can't see God. Now, we looked at what holiness, that's a loaded word. We looked at it a few weeks ago. I'm not going to go into that again. Hopefully you remember. Otherwise, you can go back and find that sermon. But there's a tension between peace and holiness, right? Between living at peace with everyone and being distinct, being holy. Peace with everyone requires patience, forgiveness, understanding, accepting people, trying to get along. Holiness, though, means we're different. We're unique. We prioritize what's important to God and we don't compromise. Holiness means we can't affirm everything everyone else affirms. So there's a tension, no doubt. But let me ask you, fighting about masks or not masks, is that about pursuing peace with everyone? Is that about pursuing holiness? Or is that about neither? Or how about vaxxing or not vaxxing? Is that about pursuing peace with everyone? Is it about holiness? Or is it really about neither? How about all the political battles that so many in the church have gotten embroiled in and the political leaders that we've championed? Is the church doing all this in the spirit of pursuing peace with everyone? Or maintaining holiness, being a Jesus-shaped people distinct from the world? Or truth be told, is it all about something else? I'm not saying some of these issues aren't important. They, they, many of them are very important. But I feel like the temptation for us as Christians in the world today is to be like those toddlers that lose track of where we're going. What are we chasing? What are we running after? Well, the author of Hebrews in verses 15 and 16 gives us three ways that we're to run after peace and holiness. And each of them involves seeing to it together, watching over one another together, so that first, here's the first one, no one comes short of the grace of God. No one comes short of the grace of God. That's the first thing we're supposed to be running after. That no one falls down in this race we're running before they get to the finish line with Jesus. So that no one wanders off the path and gives up the faith. So that in the end, they miss out on the grace that God offers us through Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we're to see to it. The second, seeing to it or watching over one another is so that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. 
no bitter root. Okay, we got a metaphor here we got to deal with. Some translations say no root of bitterness. Now, let me give you an important clarification here. This is not talking about having bitterness in your heart. It's not talking about feeling bitter towards someone. The Bible does talk about that, but that's not what Hebrews is talking about here. Because this phrase, root of bitterness, bitter root, is taken straight from Deuteronomy 29.18, where it's very clear what it means. I've been reading Deuteronomy lately, and I stumbled across this very uh, phrase here. Deuteronomy is basically one long sermon Moses is giving God's people just before they enter the promised land. And Moses is warning them there about going astray and turning to other gods. So here's what Moses says in chapter 29, verse 18. I hope I'm reading the same translation that's up there on the screen. I think so. Which is actually an English translation of the Greek um, New Test- or Old Testament that the author of Hebrews is working with. Uh, let's see. I wrote it on the back. Lest there be any among you, man or woman, or family or tribe, whose heart has turned aside from the Lord your God, having you to serve the gods of these nations. Let there be in you, or sorry, lest there be in you a bitter root, or sorry, a root springing up with gall and bitterness. So did, did you hear that? The bitter pers- the bitter root is a person in Deuteronomy or a group of people who turn away from the true God. The root is bitter because this person or people turn away from God and stop believing in God. And as a result, if if that grows up in the middle, it may defile many is what uh, um, is quoted here. And that makes sense because that's why the book of Hebrews was being written, right? There were some people in the churches that Hebrews was addressed to, who were thinking of giving up on Jesus, turning back, pulling out of the race, giving up on the prize, giving up the habit of meeting together as followers of Jesus, they think Jesus is not worth it anymore. Not worth the trouble, not worth the pain of running the race. And when people do that, when they fall away from the faith, this causes trouble in a community. It it, it troubles people, it grieves people, and sometimes others join them. They follow their lead, and many wind up being defiled. So watch out for each other, Hebrews says. Make sure you're not running with, or make sure those you're running with don't become so discouraged that they don't drop out of the race or wander off on tangents and distractions. That's what the bitter root is about. And then third, third thing we're supposed to watch out for is people like Esau. Depending on your translation, it's to watch out lest any of us be sexually immoral or or godless like Esau or immoral and godless like Esau. There's a debate whether the word translated sexually immoral or immoral here is actually talking about literal sexual promiscuity or talking metaphorically about being unfaithful to God. And We'll let the the scholars have their debates Um, because the main point is clear. And I actually like the way the message paraphrases it because it focuses our attention where Hebrews does on Esau. Esau is the guy we've got to pay attention to here. 
The message translates it this way. Watch out for the Esau syndrome. Trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. Immorality, yes. Sexual immorality, yes. Let's think about Esau. <laughs> when I was a kid, I had a coin collection. My grandparents had given me a handful of rare and precious coins. And I started going through my pocket change whenever I got change. I'd go through the pennies, the nickels, the dimes, looking for wheatback pennies and buffalo nickels. And every once in a while, I'd find one. And I'd organize them by date, and I'd look them up in books and see what they were worth. And occasionally, I'd find one that was worth a lot. Um, I'd find a penny that might be worth a few dollars. And, and for a kid holding a penny, my eyes are going like this. Wow. As a young kid in the 70s, that's actually a lot of money for me. <laughs> and I was tempted to sell that penny for a few dollars, thinking of all the candy I could buy with that money, right? <laughs> um, and that's where, as a young child, my parents encouraged me. No, keep your collection. Keep it. Don't sell it. Let its value increase. Save it. There's a place for spending money, but there's also a place for savings. Don't trade in your long-term treasures for candy that will be gone in a heartbeat. And when I look at my collection now, I'm so glad that I still have it and that I didn't trade it for the momentary pleasure of bubblegum. That's Yahubba Bubba, right? Bubblicious. <laughs> well, that's what he, uh, Esau did, if you remember the story. He traded his long-term valuable thing for short-term pleasure. He came back from a hunting trip. He'd been tramping around in the wilderness. He brought back nothing. He was discouraged. He was exhausted and famished. And what did he come home to but the smell of his younger brother Jacob cooking some delicious stew. And Esau wanted some so badly. And he said to Jacob, his brother, I'm starved. Please give me a bowl of your stew. And Jacob, like an annoying, immature, younger brother, said, no, my stew. No share. And Esau pleaded with him, please, I'm so hungry. I'm, I'm embellishing the story just a little bit, but you know this is what happened. Please, give, I'm so hungry. Give me some stew. And Jacob said, tell you what. I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. What's a birthright? Well, in that culture, the, the firstborn son, in this case Esau, would as an adult one day inherit a double portion of the parents' estate. And generally the leadership and the honored place in the family. That's what Esau has to look forward to. That's who he's destined to be. And in that culture, this was among the most prized possessions anyone could have. But Jacob says, give it up. Give it to me, and I'll give you a bowl of my stew. You're hungry, right? Now, let me ask you, who would you, in your right mind, ever trade something as precious as a double portion of your family's wealth and the honored position in your family for a good bowl of soup. No way, right? That's crazy. 
It was absolutely crazy in that culture, especially. But Esau actually traded it for the stew. What was he thinking? What kind of value system did he have? That, again, in the words of the message, he traded away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. Yet we do it all too often. We do it. When we as followers of Jesus Christ get distracted from eternal treasures by momentary desires. And Hebrews says it's godless. It's immoral when you do this. It's what godless and immoral people like Esau do. They lose sight of the prize they're running for. They don't see or remember or recognize its value. They'd rather have short-term comfort and pleasure and security and prosperity instead. And so they'll trade away the incredible value of the future. And this is what some of the people Hebrews is addressed to were contemplating doing. They're maybe weary because they'd given in to fear. And, and so they just valued short-term comfort and security more than long-term gain. And Hebrews says to them and to us, watch over each other so that none of you will be like that. So let me ask us again, what are you chasing? Individually, as a whole community of faith, what are we chasing? What are we running after? What prize are our eyes focused on? What prize are we running for? What are we seeking to win? Are we running after a prize, an inheritance that lasts and that is valuable? Can we see it? Can we see its value? Or are we distracted? Are we off course? Are we just looking for short-term comfort, short-term security, short-term pleasures? Jim Elliott, who was a missionary mart martyred back in the 1960s, I think it was, he once said, he or she is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Are we that fool? Because Hebrews warns us, if we're faithful to Jesus, we will suffer. We will endure pain. Marathon running is no picnic. Don't be, don't be uh, surprised. But it's worth it. Because the prize at the end is worth it. So the question is, do we have our eyes on the prize that awaits at the end of the race? And are we helping each other to stay on the path and to keep our focus on that prize?